Recovering Orion, this week on Planetary Radio. Welcome, I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society with more of the human adventure across our solar system and beyond. It's not likely to happen in 2024, but it looks like humans will return to the moon before too much longer. The first woman and next man are likely to travel there in an Orion spaceship or capsule. And when they return to Earth, they'll splash down not far from my hometown of San Diego, California. We'll take a trip to Naval Base San Diego and climb on board the ship that might recover the uncrewed Artemis I Orion capsule this year. In November, the USS John P. Murtha successfully completed the final recovery exercise in preparation for that event. We'll meet its captain and the woman in charge of landing and recovery for NASA. Bruce Betts will help us close out this first episode of the new year when he takes us across the night sky and introduces a new space trivia contest. We learned with great relief just hours before we made this week's show available that the James Webb Space Telescope had successfully extended and tensioned all five of its sunshield layers. This is a very big deal. Most of the critical steps have now been completed. By the time you hear this, both the primary and secondary mirrors may have been locked into place. Anyway, we dearly hope so. Go JWST! Did you hear about the big boom over Pittsburgh on New Year's Day? Tens or possibly hundreds of thousands of people heard it. NASA believes that a meteor traveling at about 45,000 miles per hour or 72,000 kpm, exploded over suburbs of the Pennsylvania city. It probably generated a tremendous flash of light, but the overcast sky kept it from being seen. Here's the kicker. The space rock may have only been about a yard or a meter across. Think about what a 10-meter-wide meteor might have done, and then think about why planetary defense deserves to be a priority. You'll find more space news and wonders in the December 31st edition of the Downlink, our free online newsletter. For example, there's the farm on the International Space Station, tended by a couple of astronauts. And did you know that as of the end of 2021, we found over 4,500 planets orbiting other stars? Planetary.org slash Downlink is the place to find these and other stories. It was back in 2017 that I first visited Naval Base San Diego to learn how the U.S. Navy would support recovery of the Orion capsules that will carry humans to the moon and back. We've got a link to that first tour on this week's show page at planetary.org slash radio, along with lots of other great links and images. They include pictures I took when I returned on November 9th of 2021. The USS John P. Murtha had just returned from practicing how the Artemis I Orion will be scooped up from the Pacific. I climbed up a ramp into the cavernous well at the stern of the Murtha, where a full-size model of Orion was secured. Standing next to it was Melissa Jones. We'd first met during that 2017 visit. Melissa was and is director of NASA's landing and recovery operations, and she had good reason to be proud. Melissa, it is delightful to see you once again. It has been almost four years since I stood in a gigantic bay like this in front of an Orion test article like that. It's a blast to be back. 
Thank you. It's great to see you again. Yes, it's been four years, but we're we're back and we just did our last test. Well, what do you mean? Last test? A recovery test? Correct. So last year or four years ago when we saw you before, we were just getting started with trying to develop procedures and hardware. And we've had those four years to refine all that we've been working on. And this was our mission certification run. We are ready to recover Orion. Which is not far off, finally. You must be, the whole team must be pretty excited. Yes, we are very excited. Early next year, we should have a splashdown off the coast of San Diego, and it really feels so real. We have flight hardware at Kennedy Space Center. We've got a giant stacked rocket, and everybody's in the final phases of getting ready for flight. This ship that we're standing in right now, you told me a moment ago, the hope is this may actually be the ship that recovers Artemis 1? That's correct. I, I believe this is the current ship assigned for Artemis 1. That's why we're doing the, the certification with them. Great ship, great crew, leadership team is on point. We had a great week with them last week, so we're really hoping that the launch stays where it's at and doesn't slip outside of their support availability. What has happened in the last four years as Orion has continued to develop? And you've been waiting on that big rocket, the Space Launch System. There's been a lot happening. So we've been developing systems at KSC for the pre-launch. We've been training the, the launch team, uh, stacking boosters. You know, once we got the flight hardware, we stacked the boosters, stacked the core stage. We just put Orion on top a couple weeks ago, and we're doing our power-up testing. But for the recovery team, we had a lot to figure out after our last mission, EFT-1, was in 2014. And we learned a lot and needed to change some things about how we did recovery operations. So. Um, we did a proof of concept with a couple of different pieces of hardware that was early on. Last time we talked, we had just finished that proof of concept and we had chosen our recovery method. Um, since then, we went through verification and validation, which basically means that we did testing that allowed us to get all of the evidence that we needed to prove that we could meet our requirements. And then um, March 2020, right as COVID was hitting, we were on out here on the same ship with a different crew and we did some refinement of our operations and our procedures, the schedules that we knew when and how we wanted to do the operations now that we knew that our hardware was good. And this was our final training run. Something you got to expect now and then when you're standing on. And And this was our final test. It was our certification run where we did our final fine-tuning of our schedules, procedures, trained a couple of our folks who needed to get additional certifications, and it went amazingly well. That's great to hear. How much is this going to look like, what we have seen over the history of the space program with spacecraft being recovered at sea, Apollo, and even now with uh, Crew Dragon from SpaceX. So, well, so as you know, we have a long history with the Navy recovering capsules. This will look a little different because we're using a well deck instead of a crane. Which is what we're standing in right now, the well deck. Correct, yes. So that will look different, but it's the same proficient team of operators. SpaceX is a little different. They come back from station. um, They have a little bit more flexibility with their landing site, and their capsule is a little smaller. So when we commit to come back from the moon, there's not that much we can do to change where we land and fine-tune that. And so we have to have um, medical capabilities on board and the ability to go farther out than a, a company like SpaceX does. 
Tell me about this test article that we're standing in front of, which to the untrained eye looks like it could be ready to go into space. Yes, it is a just a test article or a mock capsule. It was used early on in development for um, drop testing to water, like water uh, impact testing. And when they were finished with that and they verified that the design of the capsule was good enough for those types of impacts, they were going to just, they didn't need it anymore. And we did. We needed to have something to test with. And so we um, partnered with uh, the owners, Lockheed Martin, to accept responsibility for it. And we've been maintaining it and keeping it up to date ever since then. It looks like a capsule, but it's actually like just a big it's full of metal and iron. There's no interior. Like, there's no hatch that works. There's no windows. There's no docking mechanism on the top. It basically is just uh, available for us to use and bang up and use for a test article. You know, in spite of it not being a real capsule, there are going to be museums fighting over this someday. That's pos- That's very true. It's very true. So when we're done with it, we would definitely turn it over to somebody who could get some historic value out of it, but we still need it for a little while longer. There is a big assembly on top, which I actually asked you, is that a real docking assembly? And you said, no, no, that wouldn't be needed for this. But what are we looking at? So that's just a tunnel. It's just a, it helps it to be a representative piece of hardware. On top of that, we attach GPS antennas, uh, cameras, things that will allow us to gather data as we go forward, uh, strobe so we can see the capsule at night. But it's just a fake tunnel that's just a part of the anatomy of the fake capsule. Just a couple of other questions. You mentioned the pandemic. We have talked across so many projects with so many teams at NASA about what dealing with that has done to the development of you know, spacecraft like this and, and all the others. How did it affect development of Orion? Did it delay things much? So I think there's definitely some delays, but fortunately for us, we were able to continue doing critical operations at the Space Center. We were very careful. We brought only folks in that were required to do those operations and everybody else worked from home, masks, social distancing. We have a a real stringent um, cleaning process and organization that comes in and uh, if somebody had ended up with COVID, it was an, an alert was sent to our medical team. The medical team did contact tracing, came in and sterilized the area. So we got very good at trying to process as safely as possible, knowing that we really couldn't stop. We really needed to continue. Um, and management, um, my management at the, the Space Center has been very, very strategic and careful with how we've allowed COVID op- operations to continue during COVID. There are no astronauts here with us today, but I know, I'm sure that astronauts have played a big part in the development of the capsule, particularly the things that the astronauts are going to have to deal with directly. Can you talk about that? Sure. So we typically have a flight crew member with us underway. We did have representation from the crew office, but just not uh, not an astronaut. But they are definitely a part of all of our meetings, our CONOP development. Obviously, we're going to be recovering them, right? And they're very invested in that. Um, The timing of this test with a lot of stuff going on with crew missions for commercial crew and some other things happening in the agency right now made it difficult for us to get somebody on board. But they're involved in all of the decisions that we make. And once we fly the uncrewed mission, the Artemis 1, and we continue these tests for crewed missions, you will see their participation and the participation of our health and medical tech authority will pick up. They'll be on the ship more and we'll be working those those operations. You have been on this for a long time, leading this part of this, this vital part of the operation. Pretty rewarding? 
It is very rewarding. I started in August of 2015 um, and have developed the team, added things, taken, seen what's worked. And so it's been an evolution over time. I just have an amazing team. And so it's so gratifying to see those guys come out here and execute these operations successfully. It's just been a great week for us. Where will you be? when Artemis 1 takes to the sky, and for that matter, Artemis 2 and Artemis 3. Currently, I'll be at the Kennedy Space Center for the launch, um, and then we'll, I'll be out here for the recovery when we come back. That's pretty thrilling. I hope we get to talk again when uh, that Orion capsule makes its way right back here to uh, the naval base in uh, San Diego. That would be great. It would be good to see you again. Thanks, Melissa. Thank, thank you. A few feet from Melissa Jones stood the commanding officer of the USS John P. Murtha. Fans of college football may remember him from his days as a star player and captain of the Naval Academy team. Yeah, my name is Jervia Loda. I'm from San Diego, California. Uh, I'm the son of a chief petty officer, HTC. Uh, I'm a local boy from San Diego, uh, and I'm the commanding officer of the USS John P. Murtha. It is a pleasure to meet you, Skipper, and we are uh, almost neighbors. I'm a local as well. I just came down the hill from Chula Vista. Awesome. And it is such an honor to be here on this great vessel. Well, thank you. We we pride ourselves in having the sexiest ship on the waterfront, you know, and how we look and how we operate, uh, the way that people you know, walk around here with smiles on their faces. We truly have a special group on board this ship. And, you know, I went to Morse High School um, just down the road from Paradise Hills. So, you know, to be, you know, have the opportunity to lead these young sailors here in my hometown is just a dream come true. And how about the opportunity to play the role that your ship may be playing, from what I'm told from some of the NASA folks, when uh, Artemis One, that Orion capsule, drops down into the Pacific Ocean, not too many miles offshore. Yeah, it's just a huge honor um, to have uh, the opportunity to do something as historic as recovering the capsule. Uh, you know, we do a lot of missions uh, on this ship. We're tasked to bring Marines ashore. We're tasked to defend ourselves. We're tasked to do human humanitarian operations. But there's nothing more sexy and cooler than being able to recover a capsule that just entered space. Tell me about this huge space where we're standing right now. It's radio. I mean, we'll share some photos with people, but they're not going to have the fun of standing where I am. Yeah, it's huge. It's called the well deck, and it's designed to take on water. And we call it the captain's pool because when we don't have craft in here, we actually ballast down to eight feet. So think, imagine an eight-foot uh, deep pool, and... When we have fun, the crew just goes up to the catwalk and jumps in, and we have a little swim call. And that's one thing that you do in the Navy, where everyone just appreciates it, uh, and it's one of those positive sea stories that they could take back to the, their kids one day. Now, but, wait a minute. They do it right here in the well? This fills to about the 8-foot level? Absolutely. And you join in? I'm the first one in, last one out, every single time. Every underway we've had, with the exception of this, uh, this mission, we've had a swim call, whether it was inside the well or outside the ship. And that's something, like, uh, one of the traditions in the Navy. If you've been in the Navy for so long and you've never experienced a, sh uh, a swim call, shame on the CO, shame on the captain for not giving them the opportunity. And it's an indoor pool in your case. Exactly, so you don't have to deal with sharks, you don't have to deal with seas. It's a nice controlled environment. You know, the only thing that to be aware of, when they jump that high, people get a little bit gnarly and they try to do backflips, you know, dive head first. Uh, so we have to be able to monitor that. I got to say, I don't know if you've read any of the Master and Commander books, but there are scenes in that where the, the captain of the ship, the main character across all these books, he loves to jump overboard and go swimming. 
ships. One of the things uh, unique about this ship, and probably the first time in history, uh, we actually did a video for an abandoned ship drill where we actually launched a life raft over the side and we jumped from the boat valley. And I had to be the first one in to show that everyone that it's not that high. It's about 60 feet, so it's relatively high. But if I can do it, this old man, then anybody can do it. <laughs> you don't look that old. So tell me, how does that capability fit into the job that you may do when you recover something that's going to look a lot like this fake capsule right behind us. Yeah, so it's right in our wheelhouse. Everything that we do, the, the things that we have to do to prepare ourselves to have the capsule enter our well deck, it's all amphibious. So we're launching boats, you know, we're launching aircraft, we're sinking the ship and bringing something in our well. And that's all amphibious. This is what we do, and this is our bread and butter. So to be able to bring something in our well deck, you know, that, you know, whether it's Marines, uh, whether it's the capsule, this is something that we are trained and bred to do. So this is, we are the ideal platform to be able to make this happen. I am told that things went really well during that last recovery test, just completed recently. Yeah, first of all, this crew is special. We don't lose, we take tasks head on, we, we work super hard, but we party like pirates. So they understand that it all starts with winning. And this crew is special. Uh, we've been worked really hard this summer. Uh, we just came from Saipan, Peru, uh, and then we're tasked with this mission. So this is not easy work. Think about six to seven foot swells, launching seven meters, 11 meters uh, in heavy ocean, uh, in heavy seas, and then having to recover them again, uh, having to get within 100 feet of this capsule in the middle of the night, it's hard work. And these sailors are working 12 plus hour days, gritty, just getting sweaty and bloody. And you, you talk about the amount of work that it takes to recover something like this in our well. We don't like to lose, so we ensured that we made sure we were ready to ensure that this uh, mission was a success. I'll just congratulate you and your crew on uh, all of this work and on your mission. Thank you for your service. And I sure look forward to, I hope you get a chance to see a little bit more of your, uh, your great vessel. Awesome, sir. And thank you for having the, uh, giving me the opportunity to talk uh, about my amazing crew. They're truly special, and none of this would have happened if it wasn't for them. Thanks, Captain. Awesome. Thank you. Captain Jervia Lota of the USS John P. Murtha. We've got a special bonus interview at planetary.org slash radio and across the web in our podcast this week. It's a conversation with Daniel Klopp of ILC Dover, the company that made all of the Apollo moon suits and is working on the suit that will be worn by the Artemis moonwalkers. Here's a brief sample. I asked Dan about the part of the spacesuit most astronauts would like to see improved, the gloves. We are up to, at last count, I think, 64 different sizes of gloves. Wow. Up until about two or three months ago, we were at 63 different sizes, but there is a new astronaut that came into the program. She has unusually long, skinny fingers, and she tried a, uh, several of the sizes of gloves that we already make and couldn't find one that she felt was a really good fit. So we made a new set, a custom set for her. Now, of course, that set kind of goes into our repertoire now. And if another astronaut comes along and has those same long, skinny fingers, uh, they would fit that. Uh, the short answer to your question is, yes, we are continually improving the gloves. We actually have a glove now that's much better than the gloves um, in terms of dexterity uh, than the gloves that, uh, that have been used in the past. And hopefully that'll be part of the, uh, the XEMU design as well. Man, that is the, the opposite of one size fits all. 
Planetary Radio will be right back with Bruce and What's Up. There's so much going on in the world of space science and exploration, and we're here to share it with you. Hi, I'm Sarah, Digital Community Manager for the Planetary Society. Are you looking for a place to get more space? Catch the latest space exploration news, pretty planetary pictures, and Planetary Society publications on our social media channels. You can find the Planetary Society on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and Facebook. Make sure you like and subscribe so you never miss the next exciting update from the world of planetary science. Hi, I'm Jason Davis, Editorial Director for the Planetary Society. Did you know there are more than 20 planetary science missions exploring our solar system? That means a lot of news happens in any given week. Here's how to keep up with it all. The downlink is our new roundup of planetary exploration headlines. It connects you to the details when you want to dive deeper. From Mercury to interstellar space, we'll catch you up on what you might have missed. That's the downlink every Friday at planetary.org. Time for the first What's Up of 2022, everybody. Here is the chief scientist of the Planetary Society who doesn't look a day older than he did in 2021. Welcome, Bruce Betts. Hi, hi, Matt. How are you? (laughs) That's what I meant. (laughs) Happy New Year. Can you still see the sky, old buddy? Oh, hey, wake up, wake up. We got radio to do. Okay, I'm back. Hey, Matt. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you as well. Let's talk about the sky, shall we? It's still there in 2022. I'm encouraged by this. In the evening, low in the west, fairly low. There's Jupiter looking really bright, and then down to its lower right, tougher to see, is yellower Saturn. Mercury is actually hanging out near Saturn right around now, and Venus is going away, and it's actually going between the Earth and the Sun. So it will pop from the evening sky to the morning sky in just the next week or two. And uh, we've also got Mars in the pre-dawn. It's still, I mean, it looks like kind of a bright reddish star in the east, but it's actually a little dimmer than the red star Antares, which is near it in Scorpius. And so you can see the two reddish objects. It's actually the dimmer of the two right now. My friend Phil, he was looking through a telescope and saw a crescent something near the horizon, but thought that it was too small to be a planet. I said, no, it has to be. It had to be either Mercury or Venus. Uh, Did I steer him correctly? Almost certainly it was Venus. Yeah, Mercury was hanging out in the same area, but Venus is a lot easier to see the phases unless he has a really big telescope. Venus is not going to look very large. And it's got quite the phase right now because it is almost between us and the sun. And so it'll be crescent looking. So that's cool. There you go, Phil. All right. This week in space history, 50 years ago, 1972, Richard Nixon announces the development of the space shuttle program. Wow. Gosh. All right. We move on to random space fact. That was a nice way to start 2022. You know, as we are recording this, not very long ago, the JWST, James James Webb Space Telescope, Sunshade deployed successfully, which is super cool. And did you know, I'm going to compare it to the most important thing out there in space. (laughs) The Sunshade is over nine times the area of Light Sail 2's solar sail. 
Oh, that's a great one. I I already mentioned at the top of the show, it's usually compared to the size of a tennis court, but that's that's so much more appropriate for us. <laughs> that's great. Thank you. It is. Now, people may ask, well, will it be solar sailing? I mean, yes, technically, but essentially no, because solar sailing, how efficient it is, is the area divided by the mass and uh, the area is nine times light sail two, but the mass over 1200 <laughs> times light sail two. So um, we still have the record for um, sailing around uh, uh, in an orbit under the power of the sun. So uh, thank you very much, JWST, for helping us protect that. To the trivia contest. I said the first trans-Neptunian object discovered was Pluto in 1930. And then I asked, not counting the moons of Pluto, when was the next trans-Neptunian object discovered, and what is it now named? How'd we do, Matt? First, this from Laura Dodd in California, who thanks you for another fine informational rabbit hole, Bruce. (laughs) I am master of the informational rabbit holes. We also, from so many of you, got lovely uh, wishes for uh, the new year. Thank you. Uh, Back at you, everybody. Here is an answer that came from uh, someone I don't think I've read anything from before. Not our winner, sorry, Jeffrey Marshall in Hong Kong. He said it was discoverers David Jewett and Jane Liu who first suggested naming what they discovered uh, at uh, the Mauna Kea Observatory on the 30th of August in 1992. They, they called this object, well, QB1, but they called it Smiley, but that name turned out was already in use for an asteroid. So it ended up being called Albion. Yeah? Yes, indeed. Uh, after its provisional designation, which I don't know if you're going to discuss, of 1992 QB1. Albion, a lot of people, a lot of other people pointed out, uh, mythological reference to uh, the land that we now know as uh, jolly old England. Uh, mythological uh, reference uh, to that land of giants. Uh, still a lot of giants living there, I think. Uh, <laughs> and <laughs> thank you very much for helping us with that, Jeffrey, and all the other people who got it right. But came down to random.org's choice of Brandon Gaskins. Brandon in Maine. Congratulations, Brandon. First time win. Long time uh, listener. I believe that he just might be a, a National Park Service ranger at the absolutely beautiful, stunning, worth a visit, Acadia National Park uh, there yeah, in me. Maine. That Yeah, I visited about three months ago and had a wonderful time. Brandon, I wish I'd known you were there. Anyway, he uh, got it right, said it was Albion, discovered on August 30th, 1992, or more specifically, 15760 Albion. For that, Brandon, we are going to be sending you a copy of that great book, William Sheehan and Jim Bell's Discovering Mars, A History of Observation and Exploration of the Red Planet that we talked to those two authors about uh, just a couple of weeks ago. Really excellent book. I hope you enjoy it, Brandon, and uh, I, uh, I'll see you in the park. All right, new contest. Who are the main solar absorption lines, basically visible light solar absorption lines named after who are the main solar absorption lines at visible wavelengths named after go to planetary.org slash radio contest and enjoy your rabbit holes you've got until the 12th wednesday january 12 at 8 a.m pacific time 
to get us the answer. And, you know, it's still just the beginning of the year. We've got another one of those great ISS, International Space Station, wall calendars for whoever gets chosen by this one and has the right answer. So uh, good luck out there and uh, don't fall too far down the rabbit hole. All right, everybody, go out there, look up the night sky and ponder the following. If an object is in a resonant orbit with the Earth, should we call it a Terra Tino? Tarantino? <laughs> Thank you and good night. <laughs> Sorry, Quentin. That's Bruce Betts. He's the chief scientist of the Planetary Society, and he joins us every week here for What's Up. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by its always appropriately attired members. Mark Hilverda and Jason Davis are our associate producers. Josh Doyle composed our theme, which is arranged and performed by Peter Schlosser. Ad Astra. Astra.